All right, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 to 26. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what I will choose, but I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we're given a picture or a glimpse, or a window into the heart of your servant, the Apostle Paul. What he was going through, and, and how he processed that, and, and him bearing his heart, and even his outlook on life to the Philippians. There's so much to learn from this, of how we should look at life, of where our heart ought to be. So, Lord, as we look at this portion of your word, help us to understand, help us to uh, remember these principles, help us to apply them to our lives. And, Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that my words would be your words, and yet your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Here we see, as we've been going through... Um, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and, and we come to this portion, and, and verse 21 is, is perhaps um, one of the most famous verses in this uh, epistle, and, and certainly a, a verse many of you uh, know. It's a, it's a short verse. It's, it's easy to memorize. Many of you have memorized it, and, and many people have memorized it without even um, trying. It's just, it's just short, it's, it's pithy, it, it, it's packed with um, so much uh, theology and uh, just <clears throat> heart that it's, it, it's, it's something that's easy to remember, easy to understand, um, in a sense, easy to apply, um, in thought at least. <laughs> um, uh, we, we would like to be that type of person. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul, he states this as he comes to this portion, um, speaking about his outlook on, uh, on his current situation as he's in this Roman prison, a house arrest, so to speak. Uh, he, he's still able to minister, still able to have some freedom to come and go, and, and people are, are, are um, visiting him. Um, he is chained to a Roman guard 24-7, but he still has um, a relative amount of, of freedom. Yet, he doesn't know what the outcome will be. He doesn't know what the outcome of the trial will be, uh, uh, but he knows, as he says here, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it's almost as if he's, he's content. He's content in his circumstances. As he, he will say uh, later throughout this, this letter, um, probably the, the second 
biggest theme in this letter. The first being joy. This is the epistle of joy. But the second theme would be contentment. Have contentment. And whatever may come, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But then after he states this, this saying, he goes on and he kind of elaborates on it. And, and not just on the statement, but on his circumstances in light of that statement. And, and we see this, almost this indecisiveness, this dilemma that, that he's... he's um, He's, he's going back and forth between the two. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And, and, and I don't know what I will choose as if he has a, a choice or, or what will come of me, um, what is best, either to live for Christ or to die for Christ. And he, he's, he's ruminating upon this. He's elaborating on what is, in a sense, his life mantra. This is Paul's life mantra. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And we, we know a little bit of, about mantras, um, especially if, if you've ever, if you've been in the business world or um, in sports or in the military, um, places where we see mantras. Um, sometimes you, you, you've probably in, um, been worked for companies where you uh, go through the office and you see those motivational posters on the wall with a little mantra and uh, some uh, positive saying, some pithy quote, um, which for the most part, um, they seem true. Sometimes they're rooted in mysticism and, and uh, uh, positive thinking, but nonetheless, they are motivational. Nonetheless, they, they do um, encourage you. And just thinking about mantras, because this is Paul's life mantra, but just thinking about um, some of them, I came across a few. Um, one um, author says, I change my thoughts, I change my world. And that was quoted by none other than the, probably the grand poobah of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale, <laughs> who's been quoted and adopted, um, sad to say, in, in many uh, seeker-sensitive churches. Um, another one I saw, do not let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. That was quoted by uh, John Wooden, uh, the famous uh, UCLA basketball coach. Um, one which we're a little bit more familiar with uh, by Jim Elliott, wherever you are, be all there, which is interesting because, because many um, unbelievers or, or people that are um, maybe caught up into positive thinking, they have adopted that, and it's none other than by a great uh, Christian missionary. Wherever you are, be all there. And that kind of um, gets somewhat um, closer to the sense of what Paul says, to live as Christ and to die as gain, that he is content in whatever circumstances. There's one mantra that I remember um, from our pop culture. Uh, there is no try, only do. Some of you know who that comes from. That, that's quoted by Yoda. <laughs> And not to be confused with baby Yoda. But uh, nonetheless, we see these mantras in our culture. We see these pithy sayings. These, um, it's kind of like um, a jolt of um, encouragement to, to drive us on. And this is, in a sense, uh, what Paul is, is speaking about. What's in his heart. What drives him on. What fuels his motivation, his heart, his uh, desire to serve Christ, 
For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whatever I do in life, wherever I go, um, whatever my goals are, it's for Christ. And dying is gain. I'm content with dying. So because I'm content with dying because uh, Christ has redeemed me and when I die I will be with him because of that, then I can fully live for him. I'm in a sense... uh, unhindered by the fear of death to live for Christ. Yes, that that may mean suffering. It may mean sacrifice. But I know the end. And so because I know my end is secure, I'm able to to strive um, until that end, living for him. And here in these uh, few verses that follow, verses 22 to 26, we see that Paul will... Um, in a sense, uh, elaborate on this life mantra of his. And and he will elaborate on what may come, whether he is to live for Christ or whether he is to die and see Christ. And here in these these four verses, these five verses actually, 22 to 26, we really see three aspects of Paul's deliberation on his life mantra. And, And these Three aspects of his deliberation, they, they show us a picture of spiritual maturity. Of spiritual maturity, because we can quote this verse, we can try to live this verse, verse 21, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But to apply it, we, we see that it really takes great spiritual maturity. It's something to strive for. And to see someone that's actually living this mantra out, that is a picture of of spiritual maturity, of great spiritual maturity. And and it's one thing to say that I'm ready to die and be with Christ. That that takes spiritual maturity. The the Puritans um, would say that for anyone who was not ready to die and willing to die, they would question their salvation. They would question their salvation because you, you think about it. If you really want to live on in this sin-cursed world with uh, continuing to fight the besetting sins in your life and, and just see the, your failures and your flaws and the flaws of this world and the brokenness of this world, if you'd rather have that than be in heaven, then... That in a sense calls your salvation into question. At the very least, it calls your knowledge of heaven and the Bible into question and your spiritual maturity. But what's interesting to me as I was studying this is not so much that second half of dying is gain and willing to die for Christ, but Uh, What Paul would state later on as he elaborates on this, to live for Christ, to remain in the flesh. To continue to serve Christ, given the choice. That takes great spiritual maturity. But as we look at this passage, we see first and foremost Paul's dilemma. Paul's dilemma of what to choose, as he says in verse 22 and 23. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what I will choose, but I am hard-pressed between the two. He's hard-pressed between these two choices. And we, we, we can see his dilemma 
as he's um, ruminating on these two choices, whether to remain on the flesh or to uh, die, we, we see him uh, look at this dilemma in really three ways, uh, three perspectives, from um, his outcomes, his outlook, and his opinion. His outcomes in the sense that, that uh, there's two possible outcomes to my uh, situation. Uh, only two things can happen here. E- either I will be executed, the, the trial will come, they will find me guilty, and, and, and then I will be taken off to the chopping block to have my head chopped off, which would happen uh, a few la- years later. But um, nonetheless, that was one outcome. Um, the other outcome would to be uh, not executed, but to be exonerated. And then he could live on in the flesh and, and truly live for Christ. Continue to live for Christ. So he has two outcomes here, either to be executed or exonerated. And so th- these are the two outcomes he's hard-pressed between the two. He says, I, I do not know what I will choose. It's, all, it's kind of funny that he says that as if he has a choice. And he himself knows he, he does not have a choice, but um, it's almost mentally thinking. Uh, you know, whenever we're in a, a, a trial or a challenge, um, we go, we ruminate over our, in our mind over the possible outcomes and, and, and what we would choose, what we would decide, you know. Um, you know, I, I have these, these uh, two job offers or whatever, or, or, or I'm working at this job, but I, I've get, gotten this other job offer, and, and you're weighing the pros and cons, and, and perhaps uh, the decision really isn't ultimately up to you. Or, um, you know, I, I think of, you know, from a, a military perspective, you know, a soldier who's, uh, you know, uh, has, his unit has been alerted to deploy, and he's thinking, well, I don't, I don't know what I shall choose, whether to deploy or not. It's like, well, you really don't have a choice, but nonetheless, you, you th- go through that in your mind of what will happen, and this is what Paul is doing. He's going through these outcomes in his mind of what will possibly happen and to prepare himself and how he is to respond to these possible outcomes. What, what will be more beneficial? What will be more fruitful? And, and what will be his, uh, his behavior in either outcome? And then we see his, his outlook. We see his outlook as he considers these two outcomes. If I am to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Be fruitful labor for me. Instead of dying and being with Christ. And this, this concept of fruitful labor, of, of productive labor, of productive work, of actually doing something productive that, that's beneficial for the church and, and for the cause of Christ. And, and it's interesting that he says fruitful. Because the Bible says a lot about fruit and uses this, this term fruit, this illustration of fruit. And um, especially since, you know, that day and age was, was mostly an agrarian society, they knew about fruit. They knew about uh, orchards. They knew about uh, cultivating fruit. And so the Bible often talks about fruit. And Paul says to remain on the f- in the flesh will mean fruitful labor for me. 
One, one commentator writes that, that Scripture itself catalogs three kinds of spiritual fruit. Uh, first and foremost, the spiritual attitudes that characterize a spirit-led believer in, in that famous passage about uh, spiritual fruit in Galatians chapter 5. We see the fruits of the Spirit. But Scripture also is, talks about righteous actions, about the actual external um, explicit actions of serving others. But the third form of spiritual fruit is new converts. And this is, in a sense, what, what Paul is kind of getting at. That, that the gospel will go out through, it, it, once I am, if I am released, if I live on in the flesh, that will mean more fruit, more converts. He kind of uh, uh, says the same thing um, in his, his letter to the Romans. As, as he begins his letter to the Romans, um, uh, before coming to Rome, he says this. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may have some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. And it's interesting, uh, you know, if you were here um, last Sunday in evening service, we, we um, had a guest speaker who talked about spiritual fruit. In John chapter 15, in that, that um, it's the Father's will that we bear much fruit. And part of that fruit is not just in our attitudes and our actions and our behaviors, but in the people we reach, that we, in a sense, are, are receiving or picking spiritual fruit, that, that the Father is, is, is gaining fruit in new converts. He's bringing in a crop, so to speak. From this fallen world. This is Paul's outlook. This is his, his hope. His main hope. That if he lives on the flesh. That will mean fruitful labor. There will be more converts. There will be more people won to Christ. The kingdom will advance. The church will grow. But on the other hand. If he does not remain in the flesh. If he, if he dies. If he is executed. Then that will mean eternal rest. Eternal rest from his labors and just glorying in the face of Jesus Christ and seeing all the glories of heaven, being freed from this sin-cursed world and his sin-cursed body. And so he's torn. This is his dilemma between his outcomes and his two outcomes and his outlook on both outcomes, either fruitful labor or eternal rest. And then we come to his opinion on these Two outcomes, these, these two uh, possible uh, things, conclusions that, that could happen, these situations. And he says in verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. Hard-pressed between the two. This is a, a term in, in a sense which um, pictures a, a, a traveler on a narrow path and, and there's in a sense, a, a canyon, a rock wall on either side, um, forcing him almost to go in one direction, um, not allowing him to uh, go one way or the other. He's hard-pressed between the two. But also in, in, um, in the, the parlance of our times, uh, the, the, the saying which we, we are most familiar with, I, I'm between a rock and a hard place. And there's songs about that. But, but this is more in, in, in a positive sense, not in a negative sense. 
in a positive sense. That I have these, these two great uh, outcomes, these two great um, possibilities, these two great choices, and, and I don't know what to choose between. Both are good, both are God-honoring, and yet both constrain him. He is, he is hard-pressed. And, and so this, in a sense, it, it brings up a, a principle which we are faced with in our lives. Most of us will, will never be in a, a, a prison awaiting trial because of, um, because of our, our testimony for Christ. Um, definitely none of us will be in a Roman prison, but uh, you know, most of us would never find ourselves in this situation in life. Yet, we do find ourselves in situations in which we have to make hard choices uh, uh, concerning what is God's will and what is best and what brings most glory to God. And, and sometimes there's choices which both are good. And we don't know. And this brings up this, this principle, the, the principles and practice of biblical decision making. What are the potential decisions for me? What are the outcomes? What are the pros and cons of each? This is what Paul is wrestling with in his mind, even though, in a sense, we know that he doesn't have much choice in the matter, yet he's considering what will happen with him and preparing himself with the outcomes. And John MacArthur, he's written a book um, <clears throat> entitled uh, Found God's Will. It's a, a little tiny booklet, and he's also... Um, uh, preach sermons on this and, and elaborate on it in the MacArthur Study Bible. And uh, it, early on, um, when I started uh, doing Bible studies and ministering to people in, in, uh, in uh, uh, rehab centers and, and certain um, sorts of uh, outreaches, um, I would make cards. Um, and, and, and it was not only for them, but for myself as well, with, with uh, you know, what MacArthur had gone through and, and what is God's will. And you can see this in the MacArthur Study Bible or even in that booklet. But he says this. He, he bases it on, um, on verses where he literally sees this is God's will for you or, or um, God's will is alluded to. And first and foremost, God's will is that you be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. to that you be spirit-filled, Ephesians 5, 15 to 18. That you be submissive, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. That you be sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5. That you be self-sacrificing, Romans 12, 1 to 2. That you be Christ-like in suffering, 1 Peter 3, 17 to 18. That you be settled, Hebrews 10, 35 to 38. And then that you be satisfied. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. And there is a sense that when we look at um, God's will for you, and it's interesting that, that most of these passages are written by Paul concerning God's will for uh, the believer. And he, he really wants to be in line with God's will. He wants to know God's will, in a sense. He wants to know what this outcome will be, and he wants to be satisfied. He wants to be Christ-like in suffering if, if that will come. He wants to be settled. He wants to be submissive. He wants to know God's will. And he wants to be ready to accept that 
will. John MacArthur, he goes on, um, he has another, um, uh, another uh, sermon or writings about um, decision-making, which he entitled The Ease of Decision-Making because he alliterates it with uh, principles such as the principle of expedience, the principle of edification, the principle of excess. And he, he um, asks these questions that we should ask ourselves when, when faced with a dilemma such as Paul or a dilemma where we actually have a choice, a dilemma where uh, both decisions seem good and we're, we're, we're indecisive. And there's some questions we should ask. Will, will it be spiritually profitable? Will, will this decision build me up? Or, or will this decision slow me down in the race? Will it bring me into bondage to sin? Will it hypocritically cover my sin? Will it violate the lordship of Christ? Will it set the best example for others? Will it lead others to Christ? Will it be Christ-like? And finally, will it glorify God? These are some things I share just so that you can think through those times in which you're forced with that dilemma. And certainly none of us will be forced with the same dilemma as the Apostle Paul. But nonetheless, we go through life and we have these dilemmas of choosing uh, of two good choices. What, what is best? What is, what is most glorifying to God? And, and this is Paul's dilemma here. Though he doesn't know what to choose because his desire, as he will go on in his, this, the second uh, aspect of his deliberation... He shows us his desire, verse 23, uh, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That, that's that's his, his, really his heart. What, what he really wants is to depart and be with Christ, but he also knows that he wants to live for Christ. That, that's his whole life, ever since his conversion, ever since he was given the calling by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to take this gospel to the ends of the, the earth. He, he wanted to live for Christ. He wanted to obey Christ. In fact, even as an unconverted rabbi, he had great zeal for God. He, he wanted to obey God. He, he, he set his his whole life on a course of obedience to God, of, of worshiping God, of glorifying God, yet he had things wrong. And so once he's converted and he has that, that, that Damascus Road experience and he is called by Jesus Christ himself to take this gospel, to suffer for his namesake, he is committed 100% to live for Christ. But his desire, as he shows us his heart here, is to be with Christ. And, and that's his desire, as many of our, our desires, are rooted in what's in our heart, the condition of our heart. But it's not just our heart, it's also our thinking, our logic, and our knowledge and so we'll look at Paul's desire from this aspect, his heart, his logic, and his knowledge as he explains how he, he's thinking about these two choices. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ. This, this term depart is to be, in a sense, released. It's not just um, a, 
a, a departure, so to speak, as, as we think of the term in, in our day and age of, you know, going on, uh, uh, going on uh, vacation or um, taking a plane somewhere, booking a ticket, and we have our departure times. Or, uh, we, we go to the airport and, and we're, we, we go in the departure section. We, we, we drive to departures. Um, this is not, in a sense, uh, exactly what um, Paul is meaning when, when, the, when the Bible, when we, we translate this Greek word here into depart. It's more along the lines of being released, being set free, being loosed from this world, from everything that ties him down in this world of being free, free from the bondage of sin, free from this sin-cursed world and all the effects of sin, to be released and, and, and to be with Christ, to see him face to face, to see him as he is, to, uh, as he would say to the Corinthians, what no eye has seen nor ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. That's, that's his desire. To, you know, no longer have the need for faith because faith will become sight. To be with Christ. This is, in a sense, uh, the, the same heart of David. As, as he said in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked from Yahweh, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. This is Paul's true heart, to see God face to face. And this ought to be our heart, ought to be the heart of every believer, every Christian, everyone who desires to glorify God in their lives is to ultimately see God face to face, to be with God, to be free from the shackles of sin. This is Paul's heart. But then we see his his logic. His logic. Because uh, he's still, he's still, uh, you know, here, he's still still, uh, able to, to do things for Christ. But yet, as he um, considers this world, he considers his own uh, life, he, he considers that he is a sinner living in a sin-cursed world, that there is suffering in this world, but, but there's also opportunities to serve Christ in this world. But then again, serving Christ typically means increased suffering. And, and But... Departing this world to be with Christ eternally would be very much better. Very much better. And so he's logically working through these these, uh, two possible outcomes, considering uh, what is better, what is best. And we see this term very much better, which um, could see... you know, as you you hear toddlers or young kids, it's, it's much more gooder. Or much, in a sense, it's, you know, bad English, but good Greek. It's, it's the, the best possible outcome, the best possible situation, the, 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 the best it could possibly be. It's just um, putting one adjective upon another it is to add emphasis. That's what departing this world and, and, and being with Christ would be. 
the best it could possibly be to be with him. And so he's working through this in his mind in this logical fashion of what the outcome will be. And he concludes that being with Christ, that is very much better. In a sense, the same thing David wrestled with in Psalm 16, and he comes to that conclusion in Psalm 16, 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Pleasures forever. So, so who, who wouldn't want to depart and be with Christ? Who wouldn't want to leave this sin-cursed world? Who wouldn't want to, in a sense, as Paul, be executed for the sake of Christ? It's not so much, you know, as, you know, many pastors, many Christians, many missionaries have said. It's not so much death that scares me. It's the dying part. It's the process. That, that's the, and, and when you're well-grounded in Christ, when you're well-grounded in your faith, you should, in a sense, long for death. And, and not so much death, but what comes after death. And, and it's really only the process of getting there that should really uh, scare you or fear you, you know, or, or bring fear or worry or anxiety. We should long to depart and be with Christ. But then uh, when, when Paul is, is ruminating on this, on these two choices, these two outcomes, he considers also what God has done in his life. And so his desire is not just uh, uh, what's going on in his heart um, or his logic in his mind, but it's what he also, he, he already knows about himself in this world, his knowledge that, that, that God has equipped him because he says in verse 24 yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake it's more necessary for your sake so it's it's better for your sake for me to remain on in the flesh philippians and not just you philippians but the whole church in general the whole all the churches of the greco-roman world that that i have planted or helped um the 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 church universal and not just the church, but for uh, the world. Because his knowledge is, is, is the fact that God has equipped him. God has equipped him from even before his conversion, in his training as a rabbi, God has equipped him with knowledge. God has used him. God has used him, um, even in a sense, uh, before he was converted. As he persecuted the church, and in a sense, drove the church helped to drive the church out um, was in a sense an, uh, an instrument of sanctification for the church but but as we know God has used the Apostle Paul like probably like no other in church history to write scripture to disciple to plant churches to uh, raise up and train pastors and missionaries God has equipped him. God has used him. He knows that God can still use him. He knows that the, the church needs help. It doesn't necessarily need him, but it does need the help that he can give. And so he says in verse 24, Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. It's more necessary for me to remain on the flesh, for me to live, for me to continue is necessary. Because the world needs the gospel. The world needs uh, 
They need to know that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And so Paul, as Paul goes through his dilemma and he's, he's, uh, he's considering his desire and his heart and what he knows and, and he's going through this logical argument of whether to depart and be with Christ or to remain on in the flesh, it, it's almost as if he comes to this decision to remain, to stay, to continue the mission that Christ has given him. This is a picture, and you know, some of you may um, have never met a person like this, but sometimes you do meet a person like this. Picture of a person who has a long, uh, fruitful career, and comes to the end of that career, and, and they have uh, retirement plans. Um, they have plans for what they will do after their career, and yet they're given this opportunity to continue working, and it may be difficult, but they decide that because they know that they're good at what they do and they can still be of use to the organization, that they will delay their retirement plans. This is a picture of the soldier whose contract is almost over and he's ready to be done with the war but he also knows that he's really good at what he does and still can be helpful in the war effort this is this is the apostle paul he, he's ready to depart and be with christ he's 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 looking forward to being with christ he, he he knows that that could potentially happen any day now they could come in and drag him out and execute him and, and he's all for that yet he knows that it's better for him to remain on in the flesh. It's, it's better for the cause of Christ. It's better for the church. It's better for the world. And this is, in a sense, a picture of the highest level of spiritual maturity, this side of heaven. Because, you know, we could see someone who's, who's really spiritual and longing to be with Christ and is willing even to sacrifice and, and, and go on, um, in a sense, uh, some of you have heard missionary stories and, and, and people who have um, gone to great lengths to preach the gospel in, in hostile lands. And, and there's many missionaries um, in our day and age now who are doing just that and are, are um, bringing themselves into harm's way where the, the whole culture and the society is against them. And at, at any time, they, they could be martyred and they're willing to go. They're willing to die. They don't care um, because they're ready to depart and be with Christ. But for someone to say, you know, as much as my heart is to be with Christ, I want to stay here in this sin-cursed world, and I want to continue the mission, and I want to continue to suffer for Christ's sake, to continue to sacrifice for Christ's sake, to continue to do whatever it takes to uh, preach the gospel. This is Paul's desire. This is his determination, in a sense. You've seen his dilemma as he considers these two outcomes and his outlook on these outcomes, his opinion. And we see his desire as he, he shares his heart with the Philippians and, and what he knows about uh, serving Christ and his own abilities and how Christ has equipped him. And he comes to, in a sense, uh, what is his conclusion, Paul's determination. Paul's determination 
verse 25 to 26, he says, And convinced of this, convinced that to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, convinced of this fact, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He knows, he's determined. And it's interesting because as we're reading through this, and even as he's facing the dilemma and wrestling with it in his own mind, we know that he really doesn't know. He factually doesn't know what will happen in the next hour, in the next day. He doesn't truly know. But as he wrestles with this dilemma and he considers what would uh, be best for the Philippians, what would be best for the world, what would be best for him for the, the sake of the kingdom, it's almost as if he comes to this logical conclusion that he will remain on the flesh. This is the, the most God-glorifying uh, outcome and option. So I'm determined, I'm convinced that this is what will take place. It's interesting, and I've been in situations like this, and I'm sure some of you all have been, whether it's been a relationship issue, a tough relationship issue, or an issue in the church, or an issue with your job, or deciding whether to move or not. And it seems like the right decision, the, the right outcome, um, what will most likely happen might be the hardest. You know, it's it's um, <clears throat> been said before that the right thing to do and the hard thing to do are often the same thing. And so it's in a sense that Paul comes to this conclusion that he's determined that he will remain on the flesh because this is the best choice, this is the best option, this will bring God the most glory. And he comes to this determination concerning his future based on three things. First, his convictions, and then his commitments, and then his concern. His convictions that he says in verse 25, convinced of this. Convinced of this, convicted by this outcome, by this potential, by this circumstance to remain on the flesh. That the, the fact that that's more necessary for your sake, that's best for the world, that's best for the kingdom, that's best for the church. I'm convinced and I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in the faith. He will remain in this world. He knows he will remain in this world, as one commentator writes uh, this concerning this passage. Since Paul knows that the way of Jesus is the way of service, he is convinced that his own preferences will be put aside so that he can remain and continue with the Philippians for their progress and joy in the faith. Paul is not merely musing on his own crisis. He is giving the Philippians a model of the service-driven life. In a sense, Paul is um, he's, he's asking himself that question, which we have um, we, we don't see it that often. Uh, it was probably you know on bracelets and, and many things uh, you know 10, 20, 30 years ago. Paul's asking, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And, and that's what he knows. Well, this is what Jesus would do. He would come to Earth. He would uh, 
humble himself. He would serve sinners. He would wash feet. And he would sacrifice himself for the sake of others. And this is, in a sense, what Paul commands the Philippians. It's just not much further in, in chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, as he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul, Paul's willing and he's, he's almost excited, enthusiastic about the um, prospects of being executed and departing and being with Christ. But he wants to glorify Christ. He wants to honor Christ. And he knows that he will do that. He's convicted of the fact. He's determined to emulate Christ in a sense. He's not, he's not dwelling on his own personal interests. He does desire to be with Christ, but it's not all about him. It's about Christ. And so he's determined that he will continue the mission that Christ has given him. He will stay on. He will remain on in the world for the sake of the Philippians and for the rest of the church. And why? Because he has commitments. He has commitments to the he has commitments to the church. He has commitments to Christ. Ever since uh, Christ has called him and given him the office of apostle, has, has made him the apostle to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he's been committed to this mission. This is his whole life, has been this mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to build them up in the faith. And that's why he says he will continue with them all because for their progress and joy in the faith, that, that they would be built up, that, that they, they would um, have their joy made complete, so to speak, that they, would, uh, that they would excel still more, as he tells the Thessalonians. He's committed to this fact, so much so that you know, we even read um, in... Uh, in uh, Paul's epistles that, that he, he desires to go to Spain. And, and some, would, some would say that they, they would, they would um, allude to the fact that they, be, they believe he actually went there. He actually made it. He, 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 was, he, he wanted to go as far as he could. And the only thing that really hindered him was, um, you know, the, the effects of the fall. Uh, his own uh, sin-cursed body, um, the enemy. He, he, he would go as far as he could possibly go to continue this mission. He was committed to it. But finally, we see his determination and his concern. His concern. So that, verse 26, that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me, through my coming to you again. 
your, your reason for boasting. And there's so many passages throughout, um, especially in, in Paul's epistles to, to the Corinthians, um, and passages that speak against boasting, that, that you, you shall not boast. Or as Paul had, had quoted uh, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, um, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, why do you boast? It's all from God. So he, 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 he's, not, um, he's not talking about any sort of sinful, um, prideful boasting, but of boasting in the Lord. That they, they wouldn't boast for him. They wouldn't boast about him being released, uh, but they would boast about the, the work of God. That the work of God would continue through Paul. That, that God would continue to use Paul. That their boasting in Christ would abound, in a sense, through him. That they could see uh, Paul's fruitfulness. And that Christ, they could see Christ magnified through him and through them. Paul is determined to emulate Christ. To, he's determined to live for Christ. He's determined to see the Philippians built up and to see them live for Christ. He, he's determined to emulate Christ in every way. Determined to uh, live for Christ and to die for Christ. To be sacrificed for Christ. To be, uh, as he tells Timothy, to be poured out as an offering for Christ. Whatever Christ would want. This is a picture of spiritual maturity. Not just wanting to depart this world and to be with Christ, but to live for Christ, to emulate Christ, to be like Christ, to uh, lay aside uh, selfish interests, to think of others as more important than yourselves, to uh, think of others' eternal state and their progress and joy in the faith, their, their spiritual condition. This is what Paul is concerned about, and he's determined to live for that, that, that end. And we have to ask ourselves, the main application here, are, are we determined to live for Christ? It's probably much easier to say that we're ready to die for Christ and we're ready to see Christ, but it's sad to say that, that many believers uh, cannot honestly say that. They're not honestly ready to die and be with Christ. But to say that you're ready to forego uh, 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 meeting Christ and, and living for him and willing to sacrifice and serve him wherever it may be, whatever suffering may come, Paul is determined to do this. And he's, in a sense, uh, giving the Philippians and ourselves an example because he would go on. In the very next verse, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances there. You are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. That's what we are to do. That's what we are to do as a church. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remembering that, that Jesus Christ, the creator of this world, came into 
a sin-cursed world to live a life that none of us could live and then to go to the cross to die the death that we, we all deserve to die to um, bear the, the punishment for sins for all those who would repent and believe upon him to take God's wrath upon him to be that perfect sacrifice for sinners to redeem sinners to call sinners to himself and to even be mocked and spit upon by his own creation, to, to wash the feet of his own disciples, to be humbled in every way, to be tempted in every way in which we are yet without sin. This is the gospel. This is the picture of our God, of the mercy and the grace of God. This is a, a, a picture which we are reminded of when we come to the Lord's Supper that, that uh, as uh, the writer to the Hebrews would say, as the scripture says, that sacrifice and burnt offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And that body was prepared that it may be broken, that it may be crushed because it pleased the Lord to crush him so that, that God could be both the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. So that we could be forgiven. And furthermore, he was given blood that it could be shed for our sake. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And as we come to this table and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that he was given a body for us. He was given blood for us. That there was a sacrifice made for us. And we are to come to this table and we are to reflect upon that fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to this world. He lived and walked amongst us and he died for our sake. And so as we come to celebrate the Lord's death. We reflect, as Paul says to the Corinthians, that we are not to eat the supper in an unworthy manner, but we are to examine ourselves. We are to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. We are to examine ourselves whether or not, to see whether or not we are walking faithfully. And so this table, it's for all those who have uh, been born again, who have repented and believed upon Jesus Christ for salvation, who are truly regenerate, who are truly saved, and who are striving for holiness and walking in holiness. It's not for those who are perfect, because none of us are perfect, but it's also um, not for those who are um, living in unrepentant sin. And so we are going to uh, take some time. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to reflect. And if you are born again, if you are striving for holiness, and you are welcome to partake, and the men will direct you to gather the elements, and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together to remember what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. So with that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have not left us in the darkness, but have shown your great light upon us. That you sent your one and only Son to uh, 
live a life that none of us could live, to obey your law perfectly, to be tempted in every way in which we are, yet without sin, so that he may become the perfect sacrifice for sinners such as us. He was given a body to be crushed and blood to be spilt, and he willingly and in a sense, joyfully, did that to redeem sinners such as us. So Lord, as we come, help us to reflect upon that fact and help us to celebrate soberly, but also in faith and with joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.